Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and on Paralyzed Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. Today's guest is Natalie Fisher Chavis. No, Natalie Chavis Fisher. There you go. Oh my goodness, I got it right early. Now I went and got it backwards. <laughs> I looked up at your name on, on there and said, wait, no Fisher's first. No, it's not. <laughs> How are you doing today, Natalie? I'm doing good. How are you, Jason and Amanda? I was doing really well until all of a sudden the English language decided to leave me. <laughs> it happens. That it does. Yes, it does. Well, as you well know, we talk about foster care and adoption on here a lot, um, pretty exclusively, actually. And so I ran across you, and you have quite the story to tell. Like, you're, you're connected in multiple ways here. And we just thought, man, this is someone who needs to tell her story. So can you tell us a little bit about how you're connected to the foster care system and maybe how you got involved? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, awesome, awesome. I certainly will. So, yeah, so I am a child welfare attorney, and so I've um, practiced child welfare law for about 20 years and 99% of my practice are foster care adoptions at this point. So I've done foster care adoptions for quite some time, but I've also represented biological parents whose rights are being terminated or who have abused or neglected their children. So I have helped them with rehabilitation or certainly negotiating a post-adoption contact or just things of that nature. And I've also, I'm also a certified CASA worker. So I volunteer as a CASA worker just to help be a voice for the child. I really consider all of my work sort of being a voice for the child. And the way I got into it was just um, sort of really sort of serendipitous. You know, I started practicing law with my dad and he just gave me five cases. My father kind of believes you just, you know, baptism by fire. Right. So he gives you what what you got. And then he says, you're going to sink or swim. It's your your choice. So I thought I was going to swim. <laughs> and so these particular cases, I fell in love with the cases. I'm like, I don't need any other type of case. I want to deal with abused and neglected children. I want to help um, families heal. I want to help you know foster parents solidify forever homes, become licensed and things of that nature. So, you know, 20 years later, this is kind of what I've been doing. But I will tell you, you know, just recently, about a year or so ago, it dawned on me because I was wondering, you know, what, what was the affinity? What was the attraction other than a call? Right. You always sort of lean into your call. You know, I feel like whatever you're passionate about, that's your call. So you lean into it. And I was also trying to figure out what's their origin origin. And I just got to be thinking about a year or so ago. And I said, well, my grandmother always fostered children. Now, she it wasn't right. It wasn't through the foster care system proper, but she fostered children. And then my aunt was a foster mother. And so I grew up with foster cousins and I just thought it was the neatest thing to have cousins that had stories that they were now recovering from and healing from. And to this day, you know, we're at family reunions together and just you name it. So that's, that's sort of my foster care story. Well, that's amazing. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different ways that people look at family and from culture to culture. And that whole cousin thing is something, you know, that we've talked a lot about here because some of our kids, you know, if you listen to what they say, they have somewhere around three or 400 cousins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think biology would necessarily agree with the 
technical word a cousin, but yeah. that cousin thing is is a big big part of a lot of cultures where it's it's maybe not blood family, but it's it's still treated as family just the same. Oh, I think so. I mean, I think that's so important, you know, and like you said, not necessarily blood families. And even as an adult, I know, you know, my culture, it's cis. If I have a good girlfriend that I'm really close to, that's my sis. Or if we kind of grew up together, that's my cousin. So then foster cousins fit right within that framework. That's my cousin. You know, blood does not matter. Bond does. You know, and that's that's what these kids really need most of the time. They need somebody bonded into their life. You know, if you don't get that solid attachment, the problems that that causes later on down the road are, are deep and phenomenal. You know, we've talked to quite a few people about things like reactive attachment disorder, which occurs when that attachment is broken and, and the child doesn't learn to form that at a very young age. Yeah, that's true. And then when that attachment is broken and then broken again. And then broken again because they've moved, you know, from their, you know, original home to maybe a foster parent home and then maybe to another one. And, and as you know, um, Jason and Amanda, up to 11, 12, 22 homes and it keeps on getting broken. It's difficult. You know, it's very difficult. Yeah, I was editing an episode earlier from um, who was it? I think it was Galen Elmore. He was a uh, he was a he played for the NFL for a while. And he speaks a lot on foster care now, but he was a foster kid. And I can't remember the exact number, but it was 20-ish homes that he was in as a young kid. Yeah. Yeah. And that was always like, it's just scary to hear that, know that that's what a lot of these kids are going through. Did you see a lot of that in in your practice when you're you're working with families and kids? I see an awful lot of that. And I see it manifest itself in so many different ways. One of which is a lot of times right before an adoption is completed, the child will do something that they've not done before, right? And it's almost as if they're testing the foster parent to know, is this really for real? I mean, can I really, you know, without a child being able to communicate that, they do it through behavior. That's how they do it. Just sort of testing, am I really going to get to stay here? And um, sometimes those tests can be a little bit too much for foster parents. And so unfortunately, um, because of this, I've also seen adoptions fail, you know, at the last minute, Um yeah, I, I've seen a lot, a lot of it, but I've seen the, the flip side, the success, right? Where, you know, the stability is finally there, the children are flourishing, um, they've gone off and, you know, either gone to college or, you know, picked up a trade or just something successful, just somehow growing. Yes. Yeah, we've seen some of that in our own story as well. We've had some, uh, we've had some kids who, and I, I kind of believe now, mind you, my psychology degree was never actually signed by anybody without a crayon in their hand. So yeah. um, <laughs> take my psychology for what it's worth there. But I've seen a lot of kids who who get to that point where they're, it's just exactly like you mentioned, it's that testing or it's, it's because they feel safe enough to act out. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Both, right? Both. I mean, that's an excellent point. They feel safe enough to act out because they need to communicate. We all have to communicate, right? We're, we're human beings that communicate. And so, you know, the flip side is they feel safe to act out. That's key. And that's why it's so important for foster parents to sort of understand that that behavior is not necessarily atypical, you know, and to continue to, you know, take, you know, go to conferences and trauma-informed care, just with their licensing entities, you know, make sure that they sort of hone in on those um, skills and that knowledge base. Yeah. And that's something that I don't feel like we had a whole lot of when we first got into foster care. But to be fair, you know, a dozen or so years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of people talking about trauma-informed care at that point. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know that, um, what's your name, Karen Purvis was working a lot on a lot of that stuff at the time, but just had not really gotten widely 
widely spread among you know the lay people. You know, I'm certain that the people who actually I've met a couple people. I was fortunate enough to meet a guy recently who sat in one of her classes at TCU and actually was instructed by Karen Purvis. Wow. And I was like, dude, you and I need to talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Just wow. I mean, you know, it's a it's a budding uh, science, but 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 it's been there. Right. We're just sort of able to make it tangible and sort of communicate it in these terms. And I, I love it because it's a common language. So you and I can talk about trauma informed care and we both know what we're saying. You know, we could also describe the children's behavior and the importance of foster care, uh, foster care parents uh, sort of becoming well versed. But when we use those words, we just immediately get in the same on the same page. Well, yeah, because, you know, a lot of people don't really think about it in this light. But, you know, the house I grew up in, my parents were what you might term old school. Um, are you familiar with the switch dance? Oh, <laughs> Go pick your switch dance, that one. <laughs> <laughs> I see you're, you're versed in, in that language as well. Yeah, that's that's a world I grew up in. Except my mom, I, and I told her this, she she was a psychological terrorist because she <laughs> found a switch she liked. She yeah. really liked it. She didn't want it to dry out and go, and go bad. So yeah. she put that sucker in the freezer to keep it green. <laughs> and when it was your turn, she'd take it out of the freezer, and you got to sit and watch that sucker thaw. Ooh. So, I was going to say, and every time you open that freezer, you see it right there. We call that Mr. Do-Right, you uh-huh. know, but, but you got to watch it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And then she, she, there was four of us growing up. I think she only used it four times. Okay. Good. And then I'm pretty certain we, we got rid of it or got smarter or got sneakier or something. Right. But, right. but we grew up in that world where that was a real thing. Right. And, and they assume that, that what a kid needed, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child was, was the mentality that we really grew up with. And, I'm not going to say that's all wrong, right? I've right. I've had a few kids who who just needed a, you know, God put the hard hand on on the front side of my hand and a, a soft back side to get a kid's attention. I'm not going to say that I've never reached down and swatted one to go, hey, get your eyes up here and pay close attention now, boy. You know, right, right. And that's not always terrible, but right. when you get a kid who's been through some of these stories that I'm sure yeah. you've heard, some of the stories we've heard, yeah, you try and do that thing that, that's natural, just to reach down and go, hey, get your attention. And yeah. you suddenly become the next person in a long line of abusers who have ruined that's this right. kid's life. That's right. That That's absolutely right. And those triggers, right? Those triggers, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's why it's important. And, and every child is different, right? Every child has had a different type of abuse for one or neglect. And every child responds differently. So it, it really is important for our foster care parents to just individually focus on a particular child. There are some general generalities. But it's important to know, you know, the, the triggers as best you can for each child. Absolutely, because they're all different triggers. That's one of the things we found, you know, everything from food triggers to, you know, even being put in a room by themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I've watched children, you know, wait to not eat at all and then wait till midnight um, and go sneak, you know, and maybe four or five years old, go sneak in the refrigerator, sneak out of bed and wait till everyone's sleeping and start hoarding food in the closet because they just don't know if they're going to get to eat the next time. Yeah. Or or the next time. So yeah, you just, you just don't know. So there's a lot of those trauma pieces that, you know, most people in our world, you know, because we're in the Midwest, you know, good old fashioned Midwest values. Right. And that's right. And so that, that idea that, you know, you got to, you got to, get your kids attention and, and deal with them in a certain way that that's kind of a prevalent theory around around our world i would say and a lot of times people think it looks like you're just enabling a kid to do whatever they want 
when you when you step into that trauma based or trauma informed care. And so, have you? How have you seen that play out with some of these families? You know, whether they chose to a more traditional method or or they were actually really really well informed with trauma care. Yeah, I don't think you know many families are just automatically really well informed. You know, I just don't I don't think there's enough resources out there for that even to be the case, right? Um, so you know, what I find is parents, you know, sort of growing as they go, and I'm thankful that the various you know child welfare systems have you know, interventions. So like I've got a client now that I'm working with and and they're 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 struggling. They're struggling a lot. They're on the adoption path. And so what the Department of Child Services has done is bring in more services and more education opportunities so that they can learn that this behavior is because of the trauma. And there's more home-based counselors, there's there's just more therapists. And so that's what I find. It's just, you know, that the child welfare systems just come and sort of help when they need to, but I, I don't find that you know, no one just knows. We, we can't know. You know, we just can't. Yeah, it's been a real challenge. I know you, you said that you, you got to grow up around a lot of foster kids at your aunt's place. And, you know, that that's something uh, that I don't think many people have that experience. Yeah, it was neat. It was so, and my aunt is one of the most loving ladies. As a matter of fact, I've modeled one of my characters. Um, she, my, Mama Paula, in the in a book that I wrote, um, is is sort of modeled after my aunt and some of uh, some of my clients who are just like the best, from my perspective, the best foster mothers ever. Um, and she was that. And so, you know, they would always give her the hard cases, and she just had this way about her. For one advocating for the children and then two certainly learning about them uh, but she could just figure out how to make the most like the, the horrible situation just sort of neutralize and get a connection with very hard to place children and so I have a lot of admiration but I was I'm telling you before the show that you know I grew up with tons of foster cousins that are still my cousins and so we do family reunion they come to the family reunion you know they're considered our family it's aunt this it's aunt that and so it's just nothing for me it's just normal yeah, that's amazing that you guys are able to put together that kind of a family structure for kids who may not have a biological structure elsewhere in the world to to lean into. That that's yeah. a, a huge benefit to to the, just the culture in general because man, a lot of these folks end up alone in this world and I mean, what are the stats for for kids who age out of the foster system? You know, how many of them go to end up in jail or end up homeless? It's the numbers are just terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is, man. It, it, and Jason, it's crazy. I mean, they say that the aging, the foster children aging out of the system um, are comprised the fastest growing homeless population, you know. Uh, and, you know, entities were trying to combat that by creating, you know, aging out, you know, sort of services and, you know, systems and things of that nature. But it's hard to keep up. It's growing so fast. It certainly is. So the fact that you guys are creating that structure for a lot of these kids and keeping with it over the years, that's that's just amazing and helpful. Now, you did mention a book, and, and we haven't really talked about it yet. You have a, you, you've written a book called um, Adopting Tiger. Yeah. What can you tell I us did. about I it? Without, I, don't, I don't want you to give away the whole book, but you know. <laughs> Oh, well, I get excited about it. So just a high level, it's it's basically a book about two families attempting to adopt the same foster child. The foster child is Tiger, and he's a 12-year-old biracial young man. And one family is a professional football player in the hometown and his wife and children. And the other is a biological aunt whom he had never met. 
And it takes you through the twists and turns of just sort of their individual lives. And then at the end, we figure out who gets to have Tiger and sort of how he responds. But the reason I wrote the book is because, you know, I'm trying to do everything that I can to increase a platform to help one destigmatize foster care, to show that, you know, we're all sort of related to foster care in some kind of way. And two, you know, sort of bring a cause, a call to action. You know, my thought is, you know, when you read the book, it's like taking an aspirin. For some people, right, it's going to go to the hip because maybe I, have a, I need to, you know, have some work on my hip. The other person, the head, the other person, the elbow. You know, it'll it'll hit you wherever it's supposed to hit you. Um, so that and it's a short read. You can read it in like a day or two. But that's that's the book, Adopting Tiger. So what led you into writing, reading? Yeah. Let me try that again. What led you into writing a book about that that system anyways, you know, about a kid being try, trying to have two different families adopt them at once? Yeah, well, it's important for me to communicate the message that children are abused, period. That, that, that's the bottom line. And then I wanted to make it a fiction book because I wanted to make it sort of palatable. You know, I wanted people to be able to swallow it and not be too, too alarming. So I wanted to sort of put the issues within the context of persons and people. And then my hope was that people would somewhere see themselves in one character or two. Um, so that was, you know, kind of why I did it. But, you know, I go around and talk to foster care agencies and other entities, and I just find some of the same questions are being asked or some of the same knowledge is being sought. So I figured if you just put some of the stuff in a book, you know, then it's an easier way to spread it. It's an easier way to spread the messages. And um, yeah, yeah, it's got some twists and turns. As most of these stories do. <laughs> and that's the point. And the children, and, and, and really you'll see in the book, you know, Tiger, he's sort of a, a victim of it all. You know, he's not chosen this. And so that's what the book does. It puts you in sort of the seat of a foster child. You know, these things are happening around me and I'm being told, okay, now I'm here. Okay, now I'm there. You know, that sort of thing. Well, and I think it's so important that people see it from the view of a foster child because most people don't. They don't think about it. You know, and we just jump into, okay, I'm an adult. This is the adult role. This is what I have to do. You know, and too often that child just kind of gets overlooked. Yeah. That's right, Amanda. That's, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. And they see that. Yeah. Our children are not dumb. Right. And they internalize it. Right. Oh, yeah. what, what does and they blame mean? themselves. It's all their fault. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a really, 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 you know, a high ability to make it be their fault when it's not, you know? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so that's that. Yeah. yeah. So that and they'll carry that for days and years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because it's it's been my experience that most teenagers are almost psychopaths anyways, <laughs> and they believe they control the entire world around them, and that's my theory as to why they believe it's all their fault. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> growing up out of those teenage years. <laughs> or maybe I've had a few teenagers and I've just tried to find a way to call them psychopaths. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Some days are harder than others. <sighs> right, right. They, they, they test us, though. They test mm. us. <laughs> they make yes. us bring our A game. Yes, mm. they do. Yes, they do. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I know you also had the, um, the, Foster Care Perfect Imperfection Series. Yeah. Now, what's the best way for people to find that? So they can find that on Vimeo. And so basically what that is, is it's a documentary and the foster care system is the main character. So it, again, explores the ins and outs through interviews. So like uh, you were talking about, we were talking pre 
uh, recording about a professional football player I think that you've had on the show. Um, in the documentary, there's um, the Indianapolis Colts general manager and his wife on the show because they adopted his three or two cousins out of foster care. So they're sort of sharing their story. I have a grandmother who, because of the opioid epidemic, you know, found herself um, in a position where she needed to adopt her two-year-old grandchild. And that happens a lot. And so she's sort of sharing her story, how her child kind of got into this. She ended up um, having some problems, not only with drugs, but with other things. And I've got a, an African-American family who talks a little bit about disproportionality um, from their story. And just a whole, and I've got, you know, a state senator and just some other people, somebody to talk about complex PTSD you know, how trauma affects the brain, all that stuff. So the purpose is just to just give a good, good look at the system and, and make the system the main character, thereby allowing people to grow and understand and, you know, be better able to sort of navigate, you know. And so that can be found um, on Vimeo. Yeah. You know, the system is a complicated character. Yes. <laughs> <Eek>. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of like trying to wrestle an alligator. It doesn't matter what you do some days. You, you just have, have a whole lot coming back at you. That's it. Well, and then and you could ha- – oh, go ahead, man. I'm sorry. I was just going to say every case is, is different. That's so what it, I was it's say. treated yeah. differently. And so you have people discussing cases with other people. It went this way for us, and it was this way. And then people get frustrated because it's not all cut and dry. Mm-mm. It's not. That's why podcasts like this one are so important. Right. So that they can see. And so because when you when you have a tough time, like when it's it didn't kind of go, OK, it's easy to feel isolated. Right. Oh, very then, much so. Yeah. Yeah. But when you realize there's this really big community, like really big community of people like you, similar heart, you know, similar situations that are going through something so similar, then you're able to sort of you know, breathe, exhale a little bit and, and face it and, and navigate, you know, so that's important. But but the system is is complex, you know. So it's complex because it's not perfect. It's, that's why I called it perfect imperfections. Perfect imperfect. You know, we all have the same goal in mind. That's to help these children. But the way we get there it just isn't always smooth. Yes, the the journeys are not parallel for certain because that's you know we we've talked to people who had amazing journeys where they they more or less ended up connected with a kid that stayed in their house and they adopted them and they lived there forever and and worked through their. There are a little bit of struggles here and there, like every parent does with a kid. And we've had them all the way down to the, the story that Cheryl Ruscio told us about the little girl with reactive attachment disorder who attempted to kill her sister more than once, tried to burn the house down while they were sleeping, you know, yeah. and this, well, the little girl was eight years old when she did all this. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And then the other thing that we don't talk about a lot that I think we do need to is not every foster care home has has benefited a child, you know, and so we have to figure out how to fix that. You know, I do not know the answer, but we have to fix it. I was hoping you had the answers to that one. Right. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know if you vet more, but you can't always, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But we need to. That's been one of the struggles we found is that. You know, not every kid who showed up here was was really the the kid that's wired to be here in our home. Yeah. Because well, yeah. I mean, I know that that I appear to be the perfect person and all because <laughs> that's right. That's right, Amanda. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very much so perfect for me. If she, oh, yeah, there if you go. She says that because I think she almost pulled a muscle roll in her eyes when I said I was perfect. 
<laughs> I don't blame her. But you know, we we had a we had a, an emergency placement brought to us several years back, and he was a young teenage boy. And we've always said, you know, hey, look, the little ones are are that's my jam, right? You give me an infant. I know a lot of guys are are scared of babies. Give me an infant, and I don't care what you got. I have put babies addicted to methamphetamines asleep. That's my world. Like, just you just hand me that kid, we'll be fine. You give me a three year old, and once my old back gets me down on the floor and we get a playmat out and some Hot Wheels, we're, we're going to have a good time. That that's my world. You give me a teenager who's in the middle of a hard place. That's not mm. my strong point, and I know yeah. this. And yeah. and they convinced us once that you know this young man needed a place, or he was going to Boys Town because they just didn't have a place for him. And man, we did our best. Oh yeah, we did our level best, but. You know, he he stayed with us for what was it like five weeks? We made six weeks. Was it six weeks? Okay, and yeah. and I felt bad because when we called the worker, said, "Hey, this has got to stop. This ain't gonna yeah. work." You know, um, yeah. he was he was trying to kind of buck up and get a little bit physical with Amanda, and and my yeah. teenage boys were about to put hands on him, and it was getting a little sideways real fast. And I said, "Y'all got to come get this boy. We cannot. You know, this this is going to end up with law enforcement involved, and I don't want that." Right. And I look back and go, yeah, we should have known that ahead of time. But that's just not our place. This yeah. is not our place the, to step in. The thing I love, though, is you had the wherewithal to ask for the removal. I mean, that's a lesson right there for, for our the listeners, right? That there is okay. It's okay. You don't have to feel so guilty you know, and not do it. It is the best thing for this family and ultimately best thing for the child sometimes to make that request. That this is just not a fit. And like you said, it's going to get physical that's going to get to a space that we don't want. So let's stop it. You know, so my hat's off. I mean, I'm just doing all, all manner of respect um, for you guys making that decision, quite frankly. Yeah. But so many foster parents are afraid to say, I can't handle this situation because they feel like if they say it once, then that means they can't handle any situation and they're not going to be considered to be a placement home again. You know, they're too afraid to step up. Yeah, no, that's true. That's very true. That's absolutely true. And that's and it's not the case. You know, if anything, there's a, you know, the the child welfare system, you know, holds that in high regard that, you know, because that means that's a one less emergency that they're going to come to have to deal with in that home. You know, one, no police call. You know, it didn't es- escalate. It didn't elevate. It's not this huge fire we have to put out. We prevented that. So foster what our listeners need to know is that oftentimes that that's appreciated and you will be looked at favorably. Yeah, I felt really bad because I made the call and I, I talked to the worker the next day. I'm like, hey, look, I'm sorry we had to call with this emergency deal. You know, yesterday we, we need to do this emergency movement or somebody's going to get hurt. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. How long was he with you guys? It was like you said six weeks, right? And and she says, that's the longest he's been anywhere. I said, what do you mean? She said, he's never stayed anywhere more than three days before. Yeah, yeah, that may and, be two years. When, and when we're looking two at years. solutions, it would be nice to equip foster parents maybe with that information ahead of time so that we know, first of all, we could say automatically, oh, I just don't think that may be good here for whatever reason, or we, we know what we're working with and we can bring in resources. So maybe that is part of the solution. If we, if we have like a solution bag, we can put in the bag, you know, l- let us know those sorts of things ahead of time. Yeah. Because there's a lot of kids who need homes right now. A lot of kids who need homes, and there's not enough homes to step in there. And I think that's that's part of the problem is there. At some point, you get to looking for warm bodies to, you know, warm bodies to house kids because otherwise, where are they going with them? Yep, that's right. You know, and then ultimately, like we said earlier, on the streets, especially the older ones, because they are going to age out. They're going to, you know, 
um, ultimately there or a group home, which may or may not be the best for, for the child, you know? So, yeah, you know, well, and that was the thing to be quite honest, the reason why we took the young man and we, it was supposed to be emergency placement for just the weekend, you know, mm-hmm. and then that weekend came and came and went Monday came and went, didn't hear from our, from our worker. So on Tuesday I called and she's like, she's like, I'm going to be honest with you. We have no place for him to go. The only option is, is I'm going to pick him up and he's going to go to Boys Town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how, yeah. You know, at that point, what do you say? You know, and it's like, no, uh, I can't. He's a young man. He's, he's 13 years old and going to, going to send him to Boys Town for, for kids that are placed there for obvious reasons. And it's, yeah. you know, so we tried our best, yeah. you know, and, and in the end he ended up going somewhere with relatives and, and everything like that. But, you know, yeah. it's just, it's scary that there's not a place for our kids. Yeah, it is scary. That's very scary, you know. That's a problem that has to be worked on. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We we need more places for kids to go. And, and that's one of the things that we talk about a lot is just trying to encourage some, some people who, you know, if you want to get into foster care for money, go away. We're not interested. Right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. No, that's right. And, and, wow. I, and I know the area we're in, you know, it's if you're doing it for money in the state of Missouri, you're, you're a fool because there's not that much money to going around anyways. And if you're making money off of it, you're probably doing it wrong. So I just throw that out there to begin with. But if you ever had an inkling, a thought that I might be interested, man, we, we need people to step in. Yeah. And the thing of it is, you know, we need people to step in and become placements, but we also need mentors. So if someone says, you know, I want to do something, you know, but I, I don't have the bandwidth to actually, you know, take in a complete placement, there's all sorts of other ways to assist, you know, mentorship, or, you know, I tell people this all the time, you know, you may have your child's friend at school, maybe a foster child. So you're going to take your child out to the skating rink, maybe invite that child. You know, that's small. That's a one-time thing. You know, you can do things like that, that every single one of us can do something for the cause. Yeah, because that used to be a real challenge. And now with the, uh, the new prudent parenting standards, you can actually do that so much easier now. I know yes. we had a real struggle with that. We went for probably three or four years without a real date night yeah. because we had foster kids and we couldn't let anybody watch them. Yeah. You know, unless yeah. they went through all the background checks and, you know, it was just, it was crazy. Yeah. You know, not a lot yeah. of people wanted to, to have to go through that just to be able to babysit a couple kids for the night. Yeah, they didn't want to yeah. get their social security <laughs> number for that. But now with the prudent parenting standards, you know, we're able to to, to move into the world where we, we can actually do something that and create some normalcy for some of these kids. Yeah. And that's been a, a great change that the government has actually made. And I don't say that lightly because the government doesn't usually make great changes for us. Right, so. <laughs> right, right. Well, that was a good one. They, they get a plus, plus, plus for that one. Well, and the thing of it is, in terms of a normal life, that's part of a normal life. Watching mom and dad, you know, work on their relationship, their marriage. So then they came back, come back and they're better off for us. So that so the, the foster children need to experience that part, too. You know, just like our biological children would experience. Yeah. And I mean, there, there was a time where, you know, our kids could not even go and spend the night at a friend's house. You know, it's yeah. like, how, how do you explain that to a kid? You know, you're a kid and you should be able to do everything that a kid does. And you're a part of this family and everything. But, oh, you can't go and spend the night. All yeah. the other kids are going to go and spend the night with with grandma. But but you can't. You got to stay home. 
Yeah. Yeah. What does that do to a kid over and over and over again? On top of whatever happened to get them in your home in the first place. Absolutely. So thank goodness for the, the, the governor. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really <laughs> serves to to help further that feeling of being the other in the in those kids' lives. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we really wanted to destigmatize and you know we we've dealt with that in our in our lives as much as as much as we have, but we feel like for the most part we've done a decent job of trying to to change that for kids, but um you know getting that story out there where people yeah. know that that's the thing. These kids are going through through hell. Yeah, yeah, and, they are there and don't know how to tell us, you know, but but we see, you know, in their behavior, they are going through hell. And not everyone is an extreme case. You know, uh, you know, we have some babies that are, you know, have drugs in their system that, may, that maybe have no signs, you know, and they're able to develop and grow and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so there's just a wide range. It, you know, I always say be prepared for the worst. But understand that it can likely come short of worst, you know, in terms of what you have to deal with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Being prepared for the worst case scenario is definitely worth doing in this world. But you also have to know that there's some beauty in it. Oh, yeah, there is. There is. And, 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 you know, some children don't have the extreme issues. You know, they just need a home. They just need a home. Yeah. I've got a couple of kids tattooed on me right over here that that. That that story is all about, you know. Last I saw, they were doing great, but they were with us for like a year and a half. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, I've got a young lady now that just reached out to me, and so she graduated from high school early at seventeen, and got a full ride to university. Uh, and as a matter of fact, she got so many scholarships, she can't say yes to all of them. There's sort of overflow. Oh wow. Um, so, isn't that special? Yeah. You know. So you hear those beautiful, beautiful stories, a lot of athletes, a lot of little basketball players out of it. You know, it's a lot of stories. You know, I've been doing it long enough where I get to see them come back around, you know, and <laughs> let me know what's going on. That's you awesome. Know? Yeah, it is. So in your experience, most of the kids that you've seen come back around, I mean, is it, what, what is the, I guess the, uh, the common theme in their lives that, that tends to bring them back around into your world where you can see them and go, wow, you've done amazing for yourself. You know what? It's when they've built that resilience up, right? They've just built it. And I do say that, you know, from my perspective, foster children are some of the most resilient, you know, a lot of children would have been broken. A lot of people would have been broken having endured what they endure, but it's that resilience factor. They've worked through so much and they've had the benefit of services and the benefit of really loving and good understanding foster parents, you know, I've got some, some of my clients who are already in the medical field or already therapists. And so they kind of come into it with a different um, level of understanding and, and abilities and things of that nature. Those children uh, tend to, to get some things they need, you know, tend to get some things to need, but on the whole, it's just a matter of resilience. I see this. I will never, ever, ever do this to my child. I will not be in this situation. So I have a plan and my plan is, I'm doing this, then I'm going to school, then I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. You know, so those are the ones that I see that are the most successful. Yeah, that's the, the what we need to figure out how to bottle that up and and give a quarter of it to each and every foster parent out there because it, it can be real tough, especially some of these kids who come from the harder situations, to remember that you know when you meet a kid who who's got some sort of dissociative issues, when you meet a kid who's got reactive attachment, when you meet a kid who's got 
autism or, or something like that, that oftentimes these are just symptoms of where they've been. Right. 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 That's profound. That's it. That's absolutely it. You know, and they're just navigating. They're trying to, they're, they're testing buttons. They're figuring out, are they safe? And they're just navigating, you know, basically it's, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a, it's a journey. It really is. And the mental health with kids is, it can be a real struggle because I know that, you know, we, we had a daughter who spent a good amount of time in children's hospital and I did not see many people in there like yelling at the kids because of the way that the cancer was, was eating away at their body somehow or another. Right. That just doesn't happen. But when you see a kid who's going through mental struggles, it can oftentimes be the fact where a parent just wants to, you know, do the Homer choke and say, knock it off, quit being this way. And and it gets the best of, of you sometimes when honestly you're looking at the reaction to what someone else did to them in the past. Well, you're right. And it's I mean, to your point, it's almost like a parent may think it's a choice, like you're choosing this behavior. Well, even if I am choosing, there's a reason I'm choosing. Right? It's sort of the natural progression. Of like you said, what what's what's going on inside of me, you know, and and that's why when we were talking about that trauma informed care, I mean that's a fancy name, but we don't have to call it that. We could just say, you know, have some empathy, learn a little bit, have, you know, whatever that looks like, you know, whatever you know, so that we can understand that for this set of circumstances, this is normal, and there is something we can do and have and chart your progress. Do you see progress in, in the behavior? Because we need to pat ourselves on the back. It's kind of like running a marathon, right? At some point in time, we got to stop for a water break, right? We got to say, oh my God, I've made it to this smile. I'm doing pretty doggone good. I've made it. You know, we have to pat ourselves on the back to, to allow us to continue to have endurance and do date nights, like you said, right? We have to restore individually. We, a lot of Times we talk about self care and certainly marital care, and that's all important stuff. It's all important in terms of a holistic approach. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah date night's something that that we don't get very often. Yeah, <laughs> just, understood. Just for a lot of those same reasons, because you know it's. I mean, we have teenagers in our house, and some days you can leave the younger kids with the teenagers. Some days it would be a less wise decision. <laughs> right. Right. Well, well put. <laughs> well, Very well put. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, for us, there's there's a little bar up the road here in, in this little town we live in, and, and Amanda and I don't really drink anymore. But you know, we might put the young ones to bed, and we might go out and and sit up there and have a glass of iced tea or something, and go pretend you know we know how to play pool and and get our forty five minutes worth of entertainment out of four quarters worth of pool. I love it. Yeah. I love it. When when you suck, it actually lasts longer. Yeah, it's pretty funny too. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I think I've had. A, I think we've. If you were to count strokes, we've had games that lasted longer than most eighteen holes of golf do. <laughs> so, I know that's right. We're gonna just sort of lean into this a little bit, and yeah. So, are, are you guys good? Good at pool playing pool? Absolutely. Oh no, That's what you're saying. Right, right, right. But you enjoy it, <laughs> and that's it. Is we've just found something that's that's inexpensive to do that where we can be a mile up the road. So if something does go sideways, it's yeah. no issue for us to get home and deal with it. You know, but mm-hmm. but to find some small things like that or find some parts of your community, you know, if for people who are really tied into a church community where you can have mm-hmm. some people who are willing to lean in and, and come over and just watch kids for an hour or two. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something mm-hmm. that we, do, yes. we don't really have in our world a whole lot of. You know, most of our family, for one reason or another, is either not interested or, or, um, or not capable of keeping an eye on kids for, for a while for us. So. That's been a struggle that I know us and a lot of other foster parents out there struggle with, you know, yeah. so 
when you see these parents going through this uh, this struggle trying to adopt kids and and the, their marriage has to be hitting some some rocky parts, some strains. Have you seen that you know re, really derail any of those attempts at adoption, or or where that changes their their relationship? Both, you know. So I've you know I've seen it all, right? So I've seen the uh, marriages struggle and maybe not even survive sometimes, particularly if the the foster child is a biological child or biological relative of one of the partners. And so they, there's a different vested interest, maybe, right? Um, you know, this this is my blood. And so, you know, this is basically my child, you know, and, and so maybe a spouse may not see it the same way. And I've seen, you know, relationships split, unfortunately. And I've seen adoptions disrupted to, to keep marriages together. So, yes, I've seen that. Yeah, I know we talked with, I believe it was Gina Human, who um, her and her husband raised a, a, a young young man that they adopted and he had reactive attachment disorder. And she said, you know, we got through it because we just made a pact at the beginning and said, whoever asked for the, the divorce has to take the rad kid with him. Ah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Oh, it's kind of like when you like, don't that the, the rule don't bring up divorce in a marriage, whether we're talking foster kids or not, that's a good rule right there. And you got to take the rad kid with you. <laughs> but but you know, and Gina's done a, a TED talk. She's a TEDx speaker, and so she has a story. And, and their their story actually came out really well. You know, yeah. for a kid who was diagnosed red at a, at a young age, going through some hard stuff, they were able to turn a lot of that around through some really specific types of therapy that that aren't really that commonly known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So they were able to to seek out this sort of very unique therapies. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I wonder, were, did the the Department of Child Services help them with that? Uh, now, if I remember right, I think the therapies, they had exhausted almost yeah. everything. I mean, they had helped, but in essence, it, it didn't help the situation. They they had help, but it didn't really get them anywhere. So they were just really, really tunnel vision focused. And and, and I see that a lot, though, actually. Um, and I've got some parents right now that I'm thinking of that have just really, really discovered some really, really unique services. And they're telling the caseworkers, this is what's needed. You know, now they also have the background. So that gives lens to credibility. But, you know, I've seen that as well. Just that that just just being really zealous, you know, zealous. Oh yeah, yeah, you, and you have to be willing to put put the important things first, and you know that's for Amanda and I. That's always been you know the marriage comes first. Yeah, because yeah. if we do yeah. this right, one of these days all these kids would be out of our house <laughs> and taking care of you. No, we'll no, see. I ain't going that far. I'm not going that far. I'm just thinking having a clean house for more than maybe 12 hours. one or two of them might. Sam might. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I figure. Well, we have we've had seven kids all together that we call our own, so we figure one of these kids ought to be able to to be successful enough to put us in a nursing home that doesn't beat us too much, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's my hope for you. <laughs> well, as of the other night, Turtle said he was going to be a construction worker, and he was building Mama a mansion. So we're good. Oh, yeah, you're real. Mama good. gets a mansion, so. He's a- well, he's also seven, so we got yeah. a couple years to wait. <laughs> the plan could change several times between now and then. Yeah, yeah but the, the thought was really there, you know. And then he said it, yeah. yeah. That's right. I love it. That means he's loving his mama. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, Turtle's one of our special ones. Turtle was um actually if anybody wants to listen to his story, it was back towards the beginning. I think it was like a five port series where we told his whole story. Yeah. But um Turtle was kind of a kind of family member, right? Amanda's mm-hmm. mom, stepsister, her bio dad, step yeah, really confusing relationship <laughs> math, right? And um and she had a she had an addiction issue. Mm-hmm. And so that's how he came into our life. And um, he's just been here ever since. Oh, wow. How many years? He's seven now. How long has he been with you? Um, he's been with us almost, uh, well, I'm going to say almost six years now. Six oh, years. Yeah. Wow. yeah, it was It was right after, his, after first his first birthday, birthday that he came to stay with us. But before that, he was with us about, probably about a third of his life before that, just off and on, staying with us quite a bit. So, yeah, we've had a hand in his in his life since the beginning. Amanda was actually the first person other than the doctor to hold him when he was born. So, Oh, wow. Amanda. Yeah, yeah. You guys are mom and daddy. That's oh, yeah. that's awesome. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. Oh yeah. So yeah, it, it was a very rocky story. Like Jason said, it, it's a story to uh, to behold. You'll have to grab your tissues if you want to listen to it. But oh, it's wow. an amazing I'll story. Have to check it out. Yeah, I have to check that out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Sounds that like it's like a special impact. But that's that's, so. that's part of the reason why we do what we do, and, and to bring awareness for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um we have uh, a lot of kids that have been in and out of our lives over the year, but that was one of the, I think the the real formative experiences we had. Um, and, and so I'm curious, how much like in your experience, have you had any real formative experiences with that that stick out in your mind? That these are the things that that made you like go, this is what I'm called to. You know, I just knew. I mean, honestly, with those first five cases, I just I get it when I know I'm getting energy from my work, then I just know. And just every case is a different case. So I have some that sort of stick out in my mind, right? So, and they're typically either grandmother stories, right? I had one grandmother actually adopt, you know, five of her grandchildren and just to, to watch, just to watch her resilience, you know, to make that happen, you know? Um, oh my gosh. I just, you know, I've had just all kinds of stories, but, but, but really just, just doing the work is what made me know I want to do more of the work and I want, this is where I'm supposed to be. And, and, I, and I just want to lean in and, and do what I'm supposed to do, you know, to be a voice and to help. Lord have mercy. I think you made my heart skip a beat. If I, if, I'm trying to raise kids to where I don't need to adopt five of my grandkids. That's one of my goals in life. I mean, yeah. assuming they don't have some sort of terrible accident that, you know, that makes them disabled and unable to care for them. Yeah, uh, my kids better be better than that. They they better be on their toes and t- be taking care of their kids. Because if not, I'm gonna have to thump them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but like you said, you're raising them now so that that's not gonna be the case, right? Uh, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's the whole goal. That's key. You know, that's really really key. I think you know another story, and and um, Kay tells about it in the in the documentary. You know, she, she her story touched me. Like I said, all of them touched me. To be honest with you, but her story touched me because. You know, her daughter was young and she was sex trafficked. Um, so um, and then, you know, got on heroin to begin with and then, you know, uh, end up uh, stripping, you know, becoming a stripper in, in a nightclub and um, just just going down, you know, fast, going down really, really fast and watching her watching that grandmother's pain, walking with her through that pain. You know, you have to sort of not, you know, it's shocking, but you can't be in denial. 
you know, you have to work your way outside denial because there's a two-year-old's life at stake. And so just watching her grab the, you know, um, bull by the horn and, and do what she needs to do, no matter how painful it was, no matter how much she struggled, she didn't always, she cleans out homes, cleans houses. And so she often had to be home. So she lost income. And so we had to figure out how to give her some, get her some money, get her license you know, with a foster care entity so that she could get some funds coming in. And just even now, sort of just watching her struggle, but yet watching this child thrive. This little girl is so happy and she's none the wiser. I mean, she knows her grandmother's her grandmother, but her grandmother's her mother and they've got that kind of bond. So to watch all that Kay went through and then to watch Julia just be this bright eyed, sweet, full of energy, funny, you know, smart little girl. It just it just oh, it, it may have a special place in my heart. So, you know, stories, stories like that um, make me keep doing what I'm doing, you know. Yeah, we've yeah. had a couple stories where, where we see kids really do a turnaround and uh, yeah. that's one of the ones that's tattooed over here, you know, I've, I've got more kids tattooed on me than a normal person should, but (laughs) (laughs) just, just to hear his, you know, his story uh, and to see what, what I call a moments, right? I just called him a most of the time, but, um, I saw the moment where he went from being a kid who was terrified of the entire world to where in a public place, he decided he could get down on the ground and play in front of other people and that doesn't sound like much to most folks, but for a kid who's lived his life on my shoulders, as a matter of fact, I've got a, a little statue here that I, I got as a uh, as a gift. It's the, out of a gift shop, and it's just a it's a little kid sitting on a dad's shoulders because oh. that's where this boy spent his almost all of his time with me. If we were in public, he was up there because he was a cute little guy. People want to get in his face. Oh, you're so cute, and he was scared, terrified of the world. I don't care how much somebody wanted to be kind to him. He was terrified. So he was like a spider monkey up on my shoulders yep. all he the was, time. He was either in your on your shoulders or in his little papoose pouch. Yep. And oh. But then the day that I got to see him get down on the ground and play in public, like the cashier in the store thought there was something wrong with me because I yeah, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Oh, yeah. But to see a little boy, he was, he was probably four years old at the time, act like a little four-year-old boy. Mm. Those are the ones where you go, okay, as much as I, I sometimes feel like we're getting nowhere. Yeah. Like, I know we've done something. Like, we changed something, this kid. Yeah. And it wasn't any super special thing that, you know, that Amanda or I had, uh, other than just the willingness to to create a bond and, and showing what, what real love looked like. Wow. I mean, I got chills as you were telling that story. You know, I could just see that. And like you said, you knew the progress and, and you didn't know that was getting ready to happen, that right. he was just going to be comfortable out there doing that. Oh, just why? And that did, did that make it worth it? That that's, that makes it worth it, right? Those oh, are yeah. all the reasons why we do the things we do is because oh. that chance to change one life, because because like we talked about, the, the statistics for kids who age out of the system are so bleak and so grim. And to watch him turn that corner, mm. you go, okay, mm-hmm. like. Like I see some neurotypical behavior here. This is something that's that's just amazing because I knew his backstory. I knew the trauma mm. he'd been through, and it was bad. Mm. He had one of the worst cases of, of abuse that our, our county had seen in probably a decade at that time. Mm. Mm-hmm. And just, just wow, yeah. And then you have a hand and watching them turn around. It's it's just such an amazing thing. So, and I tell yeah. people that a lot of times. That's you know that's enough reason in and of itself for me. To go ahead and just say, yeah, I'm going to be part of this game. 
Yeah, I'm with you there. You know, you made me think about a safe haven story where I had clients um, um, take a child in who had been left at the fire department. And it was a little bit of a struggle because the, the child was featured in the newspaper, not the child's name, but the fact that a child was left at a fire department in a small town. Mm-hmm. And people were stepping up, wanting to adopt the child. They had met the child. And, you know, we had to sort of fight for the, because the, you know, caseworker originally said the child could be placed, you know, certainly with my clients. And we had to sort of fight for that. Eventually we got it. And now I'll go to Instagram and I'll watch this beautiful little boy. He's about four years old now, playing in the water, playing in the rain, running, smiling, having no idea he was left, no idea at a fire station. And, you know, it just, you know, it just, it, it, it gives me chills. It just brings to be able to be a part of that process and to witness it. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's anything like it, to be honest with you, for me. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, some of those stories are, are, are the ones that I think make us, make us fight through the things we fight through. It's what makes it worthwhile because without that man, this would be a hard road to walk. Yeah, I agree. Without that, it would be, you know, so, you know, God kind of allows us to just get that little bit and it puts gasoline in our engine and keeps us going forward. Oh, yeah. And sometimes that's all we really need. Yeah, I agree. Natalie, I know you said you have a a foster care apparel line, Um, foster wear by, yeah, foster care by Chavis Fisher, right? Did I write that down right? Excellent. You got the name right. Yeah. And so it's Foster Wear by Chavis Fisher. And so, yeah. And so you can just Google that. And yeah. And so basically there again, the whole point is to bring awareness, more awareness. And so there's cute, you know, T-shirts, coffee mugs, sweatshirts, hats, book bags, fanny packs, you name it. Either it's I love, I care for foster care or, you know, or foster and care or adoption rocks, what have you. But you'll find tons of stuff there. And for your listeners, um, Jason, I am, and Amanda, I am offering a 15% discount for 30 days. And the discount code is FCN, and that's for Foster Care Nation. It's FCN 2021. And so, yeah, all, all items in the store will be discounted at 15% for your, your viewers. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Now, I know Amanda's happy about there being some cute stuff in there. But um, <laughs> hopefully there's something, you know, that's, you know, that doesn't make me too cute. Yeah, it's because she's a cutie, but there'll be some stuff for you too, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cute doesn't always look good on me. I'm just going to (laughs) say, but I do coffee cups. You said there's coffee cups, right? There you go. Oh, my coffee snob. I think I only have three of them in here right now, so (laughs) I need more coffee. There's a French press sitting on my desk. I don't drink hot coffee hardly ever. I have no reason for a French press to be on my desk. A whole French press. Look over to the side. Husband, is that you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes, it is. I woke up early and was editing some some uh, an episode (laughs) out this morning. I needed coffee because, well, one of the little ones got up this morning while I was up, and I needed coffee to deal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, one of our little guys woke up with a stomach ache this morning and dealing with a, a, a not feeling so well seven year old. I, I just needed some coffee to get through all that. 
<laughs> Hence the coffee press. So yeah, I'll yeah. be I'll be over there checking out some coffee mugs or something at least. That's what's up. That's what's up. Well, you got fifteen percent off. Awesome. Thank well, you. Thank very you much. so much. Yeah, I appreciate you telling your story and and talking about the the experiences you've had because you come from so many different angles into this world that needs so many more people to pay attention to it. So thank you for your story and your experience and the discount as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you for having me. This has been a joy. Yes, it's been great. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Natalie's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes or on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah.